Okay, so um, I don't want you to say anything right now, okay? I want you to just, just um, not respond, okay? Because this morning, as we're getting ready uh, in our family, I, I came upstairs and Stephanie and David were sitting there and I said, he is risen. And David said, hmm. <laughs> and, and Stephanie said, amen. And they have a few things to learn, all right? So let me say what's on the screen, and then I want you to respond. And so, guys, listen up, all right? This is just, this is just Christianese, if you will. You ready? Here it goes. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. All right. All right. So we'll, we'll, I'll come back to you and I'll talk to you next year is <laughs> what, what we'll do. Well, Avon told me this morning that uh, she has just recently started subscribing to uh, a Webster Miriam Word of the day. And so just every day, I don't even know how it works. Every day you get an email and just kind of learn a new word every day. So 365 words every year, something like that. And um, any idea what the word for today is? Resurrection is the word for today. So even in a secular world, that email went out to many. Resurrection, capitalized means the rising of Christ from the dead. Often capitalized, the rising again of life of all the human dead before the final judgment. Or see the, the state of one rising from the dead, or maybe even a resurgence or a, a revival is what resurrection might mean. Well, this morning we are, are celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the resurrection really gives us hope for our resurrection. And that's why we, we celebrate his resurrection. The resurrection of Christ is central to our faith. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul points it as, as one of the central doctrines. He calls it even first importance. It's right there, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures... And then he was buried, and then he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. This is the reality of, of life, the life of Jesus Christ, that he died, and he's buried, and he was raised on the third day. And Paul, as I point out here, called it first importance. It's because it's, it's the essence of the gospel, that, that Jesus Christ was a living human being, who died for our sins in our place, his death for our death, so that by faith and trust in him, our sins can be forgiven and wiped away because he died for them. We can be made right with God through his death, and we can anticipate a similar resurrection of what Christ experienced himself. And his resurrection is the way it works, is really the confirmation of everything that he said, all his promises, the fact that when he died and when he rose... Everything he said came true and was true. And in fact, so much so that, that if the resurrection was found false in any way, that, that Jesus was demonstrated not to have risen from the dead, or his tomb was found and there was his body, then our faith is in vain. Listen to what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15. But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And, and, and think through Paul's logic, because this is crucial here, this resurrection morning. 
And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ had not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if in Christ we have hoped in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. What a statement. So central is the resurrection to the Christian life that if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, we are false witnesses of God. We have misrepresented Him. We have lied against God. And our faith is futile and our hope is empty. And as Paul says, of all people, we are most to be pitied. And what we are doing this morning is the ultimate waste of time, celebrating some event that didn't really happen. It would be better for us to stay home, quite frankly. It would be better for us never to gather ever again if Christ was not raised. It would be better for us to live for ourselves, pursuing all the, the passionate pleasures of the flesh that we have with full abandon if Christ was not raised from the dead. But Paul makes a statement in verse 20 that, that Christ, in fact, Christ has raised from the dead. And it's true, He has risen from the dead and we are true witnesses of God And our faith in Him will will bring us everlasting joy. And of all the people in the world, we who believe this are most blessed today. We are most blessed in the future. Knowing the eternal joys and pleasures of God. And what we're doing this morning is is totally appropriate this morning. in worshiping Jesus Christ. Now there are many ways that we know this is true. First of all is just the gospel accounts. Just, Just flooded with testimonies of Jesus appearing to the disciples. I mean, every single gospel account has the story about how he, he was declared innocent by Pilate and he suffered and he died unjustly, but that he rose exactly like he said. Uh, we could look to the transformation of those who saw Jesus as, as compelling evidence and reasons for why we believe that Christ raised from the dead. I mean, these people, these disciples who were cowering in fear because their leader was dead, now then going out bold as a lion and willing to suffer and die. Convinced he was alive, willing to die for him and for the message of the gospel. Or we can look even to the witness of history. The the church has spread far and wide across the globe and nothing has been able to hold it down. The gates of Hades have not prevailed against it because it's true. Christ is risen. Our sins are forgiven. This morning, though, I want to look at one other line of evidence which will give us hope and confidence that indeed Christ has been raised from the dead. And it comes from the Scripture 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, twice it says there, I delivered to you of first importance that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture. There's a scriptural reason, interpretation about His death on the cross that was for our sins. And that He was buried. And that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Twice, Paul mentions it's accordance with the Scriptures. That, that his, his death, His burial, His resurrection, all were in accordance with the Scriptures. Now, when He says the Scriptures... He's not talking necessarily about our Bible. He's talking about the first three-fourths of our Bible. He's talking about the Old Testament. He's not talking about the Gospel accounts tell the story of Jesus. He's not thinking about the letters that he wrote or Peter wrote or the history of the church in the book of Acts. No, he's just talking about the Old Testament, the 39 books of the Old Testament. He was thinking about how the death of Jesus was prophesied in the Old Testament, how it was interpreted that he's dying for our sins. 
He was thinking about the resurrection of Jesus, how it was prophesied in the Old Testament. And so this Easter morning, what I'd like to do is consider passages from the Old Testament about the resurrection. My message this morning is entitled simply, Resurrection in the Old Testament. And my hope for you this morning is this, is as we look and see the resurrection was prophesied and came to pass in Christ, that your hearts would be encouraged, that you come to have greater faith in the resurrection than ever before, that the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, you'd realize that that was God's plan for, for many years before even Christ came and walked the earth because it was prophesied. It was no accident that he died. It was no accident that he rose again from the dead. And that, that, that should be an encouragement to our heart. And, and that's how fulfilled prophecy works. It, it like strengthens our faith. I mean, isn't it encouraging to go back to the Old Testament and to think about the scriptures that were fulfilled at his coming? When you think about how Isaiah 7.14 says that he would be born of a virgin and Jesus was born of a virgin. Or how Micah 5.2 says that he'd be born in Bethlehem and Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Or, or Second Samuel says the Messiah would be from the line of David and indeed Jesus was from the line of David. Isn't that encouraging to our hearts? When you see what was prophesied about his life, how it was fulfilled in his ministry, Malachi 3.1 says that a forerunner will come before him. John the Baptist was a forerunner who came before him. And Isaiah 9, 1 and 2 says his ministry will begin in Galilee. And upon them the light is shown and, and the ministry of Jesus began in Galilee. Isaiah 35, 5 and 6 describes how his ministry, this was hundreds of years before Christ came, how it would be about the blind receiving their sight and the, and the deaf hearing and the lame walking, and the ministry of Jesus was filled with those things. It's an encouragement to our heart to see those things. It's encouraging to our heart to see the prophecies of the death of Christ fulfilled in accordance with the Scriptures. As Zechariah 13, 7 says, Strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. And Jesus even said that to the disciples. He said, no, no, that won't happen. And what they happened, they struck the shepherd, they arrested him, and all the disciples scattered. Or how Psalm 22 prophesied of the events surrounding the cross. In Psalm 22, it says how the people mocked him. How the soldiers divided up his clothes. How, how they pierced his hands and his feet, not one of his bones was broken. And how that came about exactly like Psalm 22 had predicted. Or, or like Isaiah 59 prophesied that his death would be with wicked man and with a wealthy man in his death. And Jesus was crucified along two, with two robbers deserving death. And how he was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy member of the Sanhedrin. All these things happened exactly according to what was prophesied in the Old Testament. And that, that encourages our hearts, doesn't it? And I just say this morning, as we think about Easter, we're going to go back to the Old Testament and look about passages in the Old Testament. How, how they were fulfilled this Easter morning when Jesus rose from the dead. And, and I trust in your hearts as well that you'll, you'll be encouraged and your faith will be strengthened this morning. So before we look at a passage, I just want you to just even think back, sit back and think about passages from the Old Testament that, that come flooding through your mind. Just you think about the resurrection of Jesus in the Old Testament. Right? Just kind of think of them. Maybe your mind's kind of drawing a blank. Because there aren't very many. There are only a few. There are enough. But there are a few. Even one passage would be enough. But, but passages in the Old Testament don't flood like they do in the New Testament. In the New Testament, dozens of passages speak about the resurrection. All the four Gospels include it. In the book of Acts, Jesus makes an appearance. The resurrected Jesus does. 
And throughout the book of Acts, the disciples constantly bearing witness to what they saw. They saw the resurrection. They ate with him. They, they drank with him. They saw him risen from the dead. And most of the New Testament writers speak explicitly of the resurrection. Paul does. Peter does. John does. The writer of the Hebrews does. James and Jude don't, but their writings are so short, just, it just wasn't a topic that they addressed. But the Old Testament doesn't read this way. There, there are just a few passages of the resurrection, and this morning we're going to look at a few of them. We're not being exhaustive here this morning, but I want to encourage your hearts and strengthen your faith in the process. And so since my text is the Old Testament, we're going to be going around a bunch of different scriptures. Normally we open our Bible, just land one place, okay? But this morning we're going to, we're going to go all over the place. And actually I want to begin in the New Testament where Jesus quotes the Old Testament. So open with me to Matthew chapter 22, if you will. If you didn't bring a Bible, really encourage you to read along. You'll, you'll, you'll understand the message better. It'll sink deeper into your hearts if you have a Bible with you. In Matthew 22, that's page 828 of the Pew Bibles, if you have them there. And here we see Jesus dealing with the Sadducees who deny the resurrection. And they try to show how silly the resurrection is by asking him this absurd question, which taken to its logical conclusion shows the absurdity of the re- resurrection. And Jesus then gives proof of the resurrection by quoting from the Old Testament. So that will take us back into the Old Testament. So Matthew 22, beginning of verse 23. We read this. The same day the Sadducees came to him, and the same day, that's when the Pharisees were coming to him, trying to trap him. These Sadducees similarly trying to trap him. They came to him and said, the Sadducees came to him, who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said... If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and the third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. And the disciples thought, we got Jesus right where we want him we took the law to the logical conclusion because the law prescribed that that a man should marry his his brother's widow and and this happened even seven times you got this this woman had seven different husbands seven different brothers the resurrection is so absurd like how's this going to work who which one is her husband and the reply of jesus was masterful he said you were wrong because You know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Here's another dig at the Sadducees who didn't believe in angels either. Acts 23, 7 says that. They don't believe in angels. So they're just like angels in heaven. You don't understand. He says, and as for the resurrection of the dead. And by the way, you need to know the Sadducees only believed in the books of Moses. They only believed in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. So Jesus goes back into the Pentateuch, into the book of Exodus, and brings this quote out. Have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And then Jesus concludes, He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So I want you to turn back with me to... Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, where Jesus quotes this from. Exodus chapter 3, 
and verse 6. It's page 46 in your pew Bibles. The context here is the Lord appearing to Moses in the burning bush. Moses was minding his own business in Midian. He sees this bush aflame and so goes to investigate it. And uh, this bush was, was not consumed and he was confused about it as he went. Verse 5, Exodus 3 says this. Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place in which you are standing is holy ground. And then the Lord said to Moses, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Now at first glance, this doesn't seem to be talking about the resurrection. But in Matthew 22, Jesus made the point. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. In other words, God didn't say, I was the God of your father, Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob. He said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus argues on the tense of a verb that God is not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. That's not that he didn't say he was the God. He said he is the God. The implication is that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive and well. Because he is currently their God. Hundreds of years after they lived on the earth, hundreds of years after they died, they are alive and well. Hints at the resurrection from the Pentateuch. Now, of course, this doesn't prophesy of the resurrection of Jesus. It merely prophesies of resurrection in general. In fact, that's how most of the Old Testament passages talk about the resurrection. It's just in general. They, they address, as I, I say, the resurrection in general. And this morning, we're going to look first at Old Testament passages that, that prophesy resurrection in general. And then we'll look at Old Testament passages that, that prophesy the resurrection of the Messiah. And, and both these things are, are, are tied together because if the resurrection in general doesn't happen then the resurrection of the Messiah doesn't happen. And that was Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 15, that, that if, if, if there's no resurrection, if people aren't raised from the dead, then Christ wasn't raised from the dead. And so we'll just look at it this way. Right? People are raised from the dead, and the Messiah will be raised from the dead. And the first place we saw, of course, was Exodus 3.16. The, the next place, Job 19. So you can turn over there, Job 19, page 429, if you want to get there. Um, Job, of course, is a, is a book, a story of a righteous man dealing with the realities of, of God's justice in his suffering. The book of Job is a dialogue between Job and his, his friends as they try to understand the mystery of God's sovereignty and, and God's goodness. And they, they never quite really resolve things. It is left to the mysteries of God. But at one point, Job makes a great statement about his ultimate hope. Whether he fully understood all the reasons or not, didn't matter because this was Job's hope. Job 19, 25 and 26 says this. For I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, He will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. There you see the Redeemer alive and well. And how is He going to redeem Job but dying? There is an allusion to the Messiah Dying and alive and well. But particularly here, I'm looking at verse 26. This is bodily resurrection. He says, when my skin has been destroyed, when I die, I have this hope that I, in my flesh, will see God. And the only way that happens is for the 
dead to be raised, for Job to be raised and his flesh restored. Of course, this was a promise and a prophecy that indeed resurrection does take place. Well, another place in the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 12. You can turn over there, page 750 in your pew Bible. Daniel 12, the book of Daniel is written by a Jewish man who was taken captive in his youth by the Babylonians. Taken when maybe he was 12, 14, 18, young, impressionable, raised in the the ways of that pagan nation. But he kept his Jewish faith in the Lord. And the Lord blessed him greatly. Raising him up to be a a power in the the government. And and Daniel 1 through 6 tells of his life. And then the second half of Daniel, 7 through 12, tell about the future. The future about the nations. The future about the coming Messiah. The future about the eternal judgment. And we read in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, this. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. There's a great divide of of humanity. The divide between the righteous and the wicked. The righteous, it says here, inherit eternal life, everlasting life. And the wicked inherit shame and everlasting contempt. Now, it doesn't say it explicitly that they will put on flesh, but that's the idea, I think, that they are, they are dead, they're sleeping in the dust, and then they awake. They will be alive. That is, they will come to life. Some to life, and others to shame. Isaiah 26, verse 19, page 587. It's the last of these general passages that we'll look at. Isaiah 26, verse 19. Isaiah was written over a long period of time. Isaiah prophesied over the period of many kings. Uh, The first half of the book, roughly, is a message of judgment to all the different nations who have failed to obey the Lord. And then the the last chapters are are more of hope, prophetic hope of the coming Messiah to set things right. But but even in that point of judgment, there there is this respite, this, this breath of air, 25 through 27, and right here in the midst of that, right in the middle, we see some resurrection hope. Isaiah says this in verse 19, he says, Your dead shall live, and their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. That's bodily resurrection. Your dead will live Their bodies will rise. We even see this awake language that we saw. um, That we saw in Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2, right? You're going to, those who dwell in the dust, right? Those who are in the grave, awake and sing for joy. You see those who are in the earth, right? The the earth giving birth to the dead. Awakening and rising and singing. The Old Testament is clear. There will be bodily resurrection. Now, there are liberal Jews today deny that. People deny that. Non-Christians deny it. I mentioned a few weeks ago about someone talking to my mother-in-law who is really antagonistic, hates the resurrection because they don't want it to be true. But the Old Testament even prophesied of it. But, but let's turn our direction now, even attention now to resurrection of the Messiah. And this is where it gets exciting that the Old Testament teaches that Messiah will be killed and raised from the dead. The first passage I want to look at is Isaiah 53. So you're right there in Isaiah and just move forward to to chapter 53. We had a wonderful time this Friday. Think about uh, Good Friday. Thinking about the death of of Christ. 
And we worked through Isaiah 53 because so many of its prophecies deal directly with the death of Jesus. Like verse 5. He was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Pierced in his hands and his feet. Crushed for iniquities. In our place, our substitute. We looked at that. Seven, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent. So he did not open his mouth. Exactly like Jesus. He was falsely accused. And yet Pilate and Herod were amazed at how he kept silent. Said, what, you give no answer? And he was like a sheep going to slaughter. Quiet. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. Suppression. It was unjust punishment. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of a living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And then we see the Messiah killed, cut off from the land of the living, dead. We see him buried in verse 9. And they made his grave with the wicked and and with a rich man in his death, although he'd done no violence and no deceit was in his mouth. That perfectly describes the the death of Jesus. And then in verse 10, we see his resurrection. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. It delighted the Lord. It was God's will that Christ would come. He'd suffer, he'd die in order to redeem people from humanity. He said, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, here it is, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And here we see the Messiah crushed to death, being alive and being well, seeing his offspring, prolonging his days, living long. That is, he'll see those who came to faith in him, who are sons of Abraham spiritually. They've come to follow him and he will see them alive and well. As verse 11 says, out of the anguish of his soul, He will see it and be satisfied. The anguish of his soul, he faced abandonment from his father. Yet on the other side, it was satisfying to him as he saw his offspring, as he looked upon all of us who believe. He looks upon us today, all of us who believe, and he's satisfied in his soul. That's why Jesus Christ went to the cross in the first place, was to redeem a people for himself. And that's why he knew the the pain and the shame that he would endure at the cross, but it was worth it. Because of what he knew would come at the end. That's why Hebrews 12 two says that it was for the joy set before him. That he endured the cross despising the shame. And now he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Seeing his redeemed people. Isaiah 53 speaks of this most clearly. And then verse 11 continues, right? By his knowledge, the, the righteous one, my servant... Make many to be accounted righteous as he shall bear their iniquities. Verse 12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressions, transgressors that the suffering servants alive and well, though. Yes, he was poured out his soul to death. And though he was killed in number with transgressions, he was killed as a common criminal, yet he is, is alive and he divides the booty in his victory and he even prays for us today. That's how it ends. He makes intercession for the transgressors. He's alive, victorious, praying for us. Hebrews 7, 
Verse 25 says he always lives to make intercession for us. We see the death detailed exactly, and we see the same one who died is alive and well and rejoicing in the fruit of his death. There's the resurrection. Isaiah 53. We see it also in Zechariah 12, page 799. It's toward the end of your Old Testament. Zechariah 12 and verse 10. This was written after the return of the Jews from the Babylonian exile in which Daniel was taken away in. It was it, it really gives us hope for the future. As much of it is prophetic looking forward. And, and verse 10 is a, is a verse that, that focuses upon what will take place in the heart of the Jews someday. Zechariah 12.10 The Lord says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. This is God's grace to the Jewish people that that he will initiate a softening of their heart by giving them a spirit of grace, by giving them pleas for mercy. Why will they plead for mercy? Because verse 10 says, they will look upon me whom they have pierced. The, The Lord God says this, they're going to they're gonna look upon me. And, and I was there. And I was pierced. And, an obvious allusion, then when you understand it all, to the cross. And, and I think that they, the idea there is they, they see him and they say, oh, what have we done? We have made a grand mistake. We killed the Lord. And when it all comes to clarity for them, they'll realize what happened. Because it was confusion before when, when Pilate stood before the Jews and asked them, what should I do with this one who's called the Christ? They shouted out, let him be crucified. And Pilate said, well, what evil has he done? And they cried out all the more, let him be crucified. And the guilt was on their hands. And they took it and these Jews knew what they were doing. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 2, 18, 2, 8, that none of the rulers of this age understood. For if they had understood, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But instead, they, they crucified Jesus, the Lord of glory. Because they didn't understand. But that veil is lifted when God gives them the spirit of grace. And it all changes. When they realize what they have done. how the, They kill the Lord, Lord of glory and they look upon Him on him whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. And the, and the point is this, it's obvious repentance. right? It's how anyone comes to the Lord. It's, it's, it's by realizing the, the wickedness of what we have done. In this case, it's killing Jesus. In other cases, it is, it is blasphemy against the Lord, or, or lying, or, or transgressing any of the Ten Commandments in thought, word, or deed in any way, and should, should lead us to cry to God for mercy and grace. But the point for us here this morning is that Zechariah 12.10 prophesies of the resurrection of the Messiah, that, that the Lord of glory was crucified, and then He was looked upon, and then they weep because they realize what they have done. It's a prophecy of the Messiah. Well, one last one. Psalm 16, page 453 in your, in your pew Bibles. It's perhaps the most definitive of, of all Old Testament passages that speak of the resurrection of the Messiah. If you, if you 
Think about my message. You only get one thing out of it. Get Psalm 16 out of it. Put Psalm 16 in your mind. Okay, resurrection in the Old Testament. Okay, 53 is good. Psalm 16 is the best. And I say that because when Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost, to prove the resurrection from the Old Testament, he goes to Psalm 16. And when Paul was in Sydney Antioch, preaching there in the synagogue evangelistically, trying to prove from the Old Testament the resurrection of Jesus, how it must happen, he, he quotes from Psalm 16. They didn't quote Isaiah 53. They could have. They could have quoted Zechariah 12.10. They didn't. They quoted Psalm 16. Psalm 16 finds David in trouble, but he's, he's trusting in God's goodness to him. And... Uh, that, that he will save, that we'll save the, the entire psalm rather for, for another time. Maybe next year we'll, we'll look through Psalm 16. But, but enough now that just, just the key is that David was in trouble and he's trusting the Lord. And then in verse 9, he says this. He says, Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also shall dwell secure for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. See, David was glad in the Lord. Yes, he was in trouble. I, verse 1, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. You are my God. Apart from you, I have no good thing. It's just you and I'm trusting you. But my heart is glad because you will not abandon me. And look at what he says, though. He says, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. The Lord will be faithful to David even unto death. Even beyond death is what he believed. He believed that he wouldn't be abandoned even to the grave. And right here you see how Old Testament prophecy works. This is what David believed, but David really didn't experience it fully. Oh, yes, he experienced God's faithfulness to his dying day. But, as Peter points out in Acts chapter 2, that, that David decayed. That David was in the tomb. So David must have been speaking of something greater. Of someone who, the Holy One particularly, who did not see corruption. And you say, who is that? Well, that's Jesus. And I think the best place to show you how Psalm 16 is applied by Peter is in Acts chapter 2. Where he quotes. So turn over to Acts chapter 2. Because this is where Peter really pulls out Psalm 16. And really demonstrates and proves to the Jews the resurrection of the Christ. And how that must happen. So in Acts chapter 2, we see in verses 22 through 24. Peter just reiterating the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus. He says in verse 22, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. A man attested you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. Peter's preaching to him. He says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. He said, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And he says in verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, and then he quotes Psalm 16. I saw the Lord always before me. He's at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the paths of life and your presence is fullness of joy. 
And then Peter applies it. He says, that's what David says, and Peter applies it. He says this, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. So in other words, right, they could go and visit the tomb of David. We can go and visit various tombs of of fallen leaders. He said, he corrupted, he died. But, he said, verse 30, in David, writing Psalm 16, he was a prophet. Being therefore a prophet, knowing that God had sworn beforehand with an oath that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor does flesh see corruption. So you see, see what he's saying? He said, he said that David, when he wrote in Psalm 16, was writing prophetically of the Holy One who wasn't going to undergo destruction because he's going to be raised from the dead. And that's what he says. This Jesus, God raised up. And of that, we all are witnesses. See, David died and decayed. But Christ didn't decay. He wasn't in the tomb long enough. And David knew, 2 Samuel 7, that one of his descendants would sit on his throne and that would be the Holy One, the Messiah, who would come. And he wasn't abandoned to Hades. And Peter finishes up by saying, hey, we saw it. We are witnesses. And in that we can hope, Psalm 16, the resurrection of the Messiah from the Old Testament. That's one point back. One little piece of logic here that, that Peter had. Look, look back in verse 24. He said, God raised Jesus up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. When Jesus was in the tomb, it wasn't possible for him to stay in the tomb. Like like he had to get out. He was going to explode. He was going to get out. It wasn't possible. And you know why? Look what he says. For David says concerning him. Peter knew that Jesus couldn't stay in the tomb because David had prophesied that the Holy One wasn't going to stay in the tomb. And we come back here, resurrection in the Old Testament. When God wrote these things in the Old Testament, right, when Holy Spirit right, spoke through men, right, when, when the Old Testament was written, these things were as sure as gold. He said it was not possible because David said concerning him that he would not be abandoned to Hades. And let's just finish my message this morning, really by, by trusting God's word, right? That he argued, Jesus argued on the tense of a verb. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That Peter argued on the veracity of the Old Testament that it was said back then, therefore Jesus had to rise from the dead. They say, so what's a good application for us? I think verse 28 is. Just in terms of how Psalm 16 finishes. Verse 28 is Psalm 1611. It is the very last verse in the psalm. Um, the way Peter quotes it says this, you will make me full of gladness with your presence. The way that the Hebrew, different translation a little bit, says for in your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The, the idea is this, is that God is so faithful to us, to his Christ, that, that when we're with him, right, he made known to me the paths of life. I know the path to go the right way. I know the path to go the wrong way. If I go the right way, I'm in your presence and there are pleasures forevermore in your presence. Gladness and joy are promised to those who believe in Christ's resurrection. When we talk about eternal life, it's not like eternal existence. Okay, It's not like eternal pain and sorrows of this life. It's eternal life to the abundance of life and joy and happiness. No more tears and no more sorrows. 
That's what he is talking about in his presence is fullness of joy. That's of first importance. And if you don't believe these things, then Jesus has been raised in vain. But Jesus has been risen from the dead. Let me just finish how I start. That, that one phrase, and let's say it together, and then we'll pray, and then we'll sing the doxology, and, and then we'll be done this morning. So, Jesus is risen. Let's pray. Father, we are, are thankful, God, for your word in the Old Testament that prophesied of the resurrection, that prophesied of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, the, the Messiah who would come. Lord, I would pray this Easter morning that we would rejoice in those things. God, that we would realize that our, our hope is really founded upon that, but it is secure because the scriptures are sure and certain and they will be fulfilled. And in that, oh God, we do rejoice. God, help us this Easter morning. Just take another step forward in our faith and trust and confidence in your word. Just thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for the way they put together uh, the things in the Old Testament or the promises made. And the things in the New Testament demonstrate that these promises that were made were kept. We thank you that Jesus conquered death. That we can triumph now over the grave ourselves. We have nothing to fear in this life knowing that we will be with you in this life. We'll be with you in our death. We'll be with you as we wait your return. God, to be with you forever where there are joys and pleasures. I pray those pleasures and joys would would press us on to know and to think about the experience of, of what is far better than anything we've ever tasted here upon earth. Because you died and ransomed uh, this for us to give us this great inheritance. We thank you, O Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.